section ten of the world's famous orations volume five this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the world's famous orations volume five augustin burrell the distinction of burke footnote from a lecture delivered before the edinburgh philosophical society printed here by kind permission of mr burrell End footnote. born in eighteen fifty graduated from cambridge in eighteen seventy two barrister in eighteen seventy five professor of law in eighteen ninety six member of parliament in eighteen ninety nine member of the cabinet in nineteen o six the first great fact to remember is that the edmund burke we are all agreed in regarding as one of the proudest memories of the house of commons was an irish man when we are in our next fit of political depression about that island and are about piously to wish as the poet spencer tells us men were wishing even in his time that it were not adjacent let us do a little national stock-taking and calculate profits as well as losses burke was not only an irish man but a typical one of the very kind many englishmen and even possibly some scotchmen make a point of disliking i do not say he was an aboriginal irishman but his ancestors are said to have settled in the county of galway under strongbow in king henry the second's time when ireland was first conquered and our troubles began this at all events is a better irish pedigree than mr parnell's burke was brought up in the protestant faith of his father and was never in any real danger of deviating from it but i cannot doubt that his regard for the catholic fellow-subjects his fierce repudiation of the infamies of the penal code whose horrors he did something to mitigate his respect for antiquity and his historic sense were all quickened by the fact that a tenderly loved and loving mother belonged through life and in death to an ancient and an outraged faith burke came to london with a cultivated curiosity and in no spirit of desperate determination to make his fortune that the study of the law interested him cannot be doubted for everything interested him and particularly the stage like the sensible irishman he was he lost his heart to peg woofington on the first opportunity he was fond of roaming about the country during it is to be hoped vacation time only and is to be found writing the most cheerful letters to his friends in ireland all of whom are persuaded that he is going some day to be somebody though sorely puzzled to surmise what thing or when so pleasantly does he take life from all sorts of out-of-the-way country places where he lodges with quaint old landladies who wonder maternally why he never gets drunk and generally mistake him for an author until he pays his bill when in town he frequented debating societies in fleet street and covent garden and made his first speeches for which purpose he would unlike some debaters devote studious hours to getting up the subjects to be discussed there is good reason to believe that it was in this manner his attention was first directed to india 
he was at all times a great talker and dr johnson's dictum notwithstanding a good listener he was endlessly interested in everything in the state of the crops in the last play in the details of all trades the rhythm of all poems the plots of all novels and indeed in the course of every manufacture and so for six years he went up and down to and fro gathering information imparting knowledge and preparing himself though he knew not for what but great as were burke's literary powers and passionate as was his fondness for letters and for literary society he never seems to have felt that the main burden of his life lay in that direction he looked to the public service and this though he always believed that the pen of a great writer was a more powerful and glorious weapon than any to be found in the armory of politics it is satisfactory to notice how from the very first burke's intellectual preeminence character and aims were clearly admitted and most cheerfully recognized by his political and social superiors and in the long correspondence in which he engaged with most of them there is not a trace to be found on one side or the other of anything approaching to either patronage or servility burke advises them exhorts them expostulates with them condemns their aristocratic languor fans their feeble flames drafts their motions dictates their protests visits their houses and generally supplies them with facts figures poetry and romance to all this they submit with much humility the duke of richmond once indeed ventured to hint to burke with exceeding delicacy that he the duke had a small private estate to attend to as well as public affairs but the validity of the excuse was not admitted the part burke played for the next fifteen years with relation to the rockingham party reminds me of the functions i have observed performed in lazy families by a soberly clad and eminently respectable person who pays them domiciliary visits and having admission everywhere goes about mysteriously from room to room winding up all the clocks this is what burke did for the rockingham party he kept it going but fortunately for us burke was not content with private adjuration or even public speech his literary instincts his dominating desire to persuade everybody that he edmund burke was absolutely in the right and every one of his opponents hopelessly wrong made him turn to the pamphlet as a propaganda and in his hands the thing became a trumpet whence he blew soul animating strains so accustomed are we to regard burke's pamphlets as specimens of our noblest literature and to see them printed in comfortable volumes that we are apt to forget that in their origin they were but the children of the pavement the publications of the hour i have now rather more than kept my word so far as burke's pre-parliamentary life is concerned and will proceed to mention some of the circumstances that may serve to account for the fact that when the rockingham party came into power for the second time in seventeen eighty two burke who was their life and soul was only rewarded with a minor office footnote 
burke in this ministry was paymaster general and privy councillor and a footnote first then it must be recorded sorrowfully of burke that he was always desperately in debt and in this country no politician under the rank of a baronet can ever safely be in debt burke's finances are and always have been marvels and mysteries but one thing must be said of them that the malignity of his enemies both tory enemies and radical enemies has never succeeded in formulating any charge of dishonesty against him that has not been at once completely pulverized and shown on the facts to be impossible burke's purchase of the estate at beaconsfield in seventeen sixty eight only two years after he entered parliament consisting as it did of a good house and sixteen hundred acres of land has puzzled a great many good men much more than it ever did edmund burke but how did he get the money after an irish fashion by not getting it at all two-thirds of the purchase money remained on mortgage and the balance he borrowed or as he puts it with all i could collect of my own and by the aid of my friends i have established a route in the country that is how burke bought beaconsfield where he lived till his end came whither he always hastened when his sensitive mind was tortured by the thought of how badly men governed the world where he entertained all sorts and conditions of men quakers brahmins for whose ancient rites he provided suitable accommodation in a greenhouse nobles and abbeys flying from revolutionary france poets painters and peers no one of whom ever long remained a stranger to his charm farming if it is to pay is a pursuit of small economies and burke was far too asiatic tropical and splendid to have anything to do with small economies his expenditure like his rhetoric was in the grand style he belongs to charles lamb's great race the men who borrow but indeed it was not so much that burke borrowed as that men lent right-feeling men did not wait to be asked dr brocklesby that good physician whose name breathes like a benediction through the pages of the biographies of the best men of his time who soothed dr johnson's last melancholy hours and for whose supposed heterodoxy the dying man displayed so tender a solicitude wrote to burke in the strain of a timid suitor proposing for the hand of a proud heiress to know whether burke would be so good as to accept one thousand pounds at once instead of waiting for the writer's death burke felt no hesitation in obliging so old a friend garrick who though fond of money was as generous-hearted a fellow as ever brought down a house lent burke one thousand pounds sir joshua reynolds who had been reckoned stingy by his will left burke two thousand pounds and forgave him another two thousand pounds which he had lent him the marquis of rockingham by his will directed all burke's bonds held by him to be cancelled they amounted to thirty thousand pounds burke's patrimonial estate was sold by him for four thousand pounds 
and i have seen it stated that he had received altogether from family sources as much as twenty thousand pounds and yet he was always poor and was glad at the last to accept pensions from the crown in order that he might not leave his wife a beggar this good lady survived her illustrious husband twelve years and seemed as his widow to have some success in paying his bills for at her death all remaining demands were found to be discharged had burke been a moralist of the calibre of charles james fox he might have amassed a fortune large enough to keep up half a dozen beacons fields by simply doing what all his predecessors in the office he held including fox's own father the truly infamous first lord holland had done namely by retaining for his own use the interest on all balances of the public money from time to time in his hands as paymaster of the forces but burr carried his passion for good government into actual practice and cutting down the emoluments of his office to a salary a high one no doubt effected a saving to the country of some twenty five thousand pounds a year every farthing of which might have gone without remark into his own pocket burke had no vices save of style and temper nor was any of his expenditure a profligate squandering of money it all went in giving employment or disseminating kindness he sent the painter barry to study art in italy he saved the poet crabbe from starvation and despair and thus secured to the country one who owns the unrivalled distinction of having been the favorite poet of the three greatest intellectual factors of the age scientific men excepted lord byron sir walter scott and cardinal newman yet so distorted are men's views that the odious and antisocial excesses of fox at the gambling-table are visited with a blame usually wreathed in smiles whilst the financial irregularities of a noble and pure-minded man are thought fit matter for the fiercest censure or the most lordly contempt next to burke's debts some of his companions and intimates did him harm and injured his consequence his brother richard whose brogue we are given to understand was simply appalling was a good-for-nothing with a dilapidated reputation then there was another mr burke who was no relation but none the less was always about and to whom it was not safe to lend money burke's son too whose death he mourned so pathetically seems to have been a failure and is described by a candid friend as a nauseating person to have a decent following is important in politics it now only remains for me drawing upon my stock of assurance to essay the analysis of the essential elements of burke's mental character and i therefore at once proceed to say that it was burke's peculiarity and his glory to apply the imagination of a poet of the first order to the facts and the business of life arnold says of sophocles he saw life steadily and saw it whole substitute for the word life the words organized society and you get a peep into burke's mind there was a catholicity about his gaze he knew how the whole world lived everything contributed to this 
his vast desultory reading his education neither wholly academical nor entirely professional his long years of apprenticeship in the service of knowledge his wanderings up and down the country his vast conversational powers his enormous correspondence with all sorts of people his unfailing interest in all pursuits trades manufactures all helped to keep before him like notes dancing in a sunbeam the huge organism of modern society which requires for its existence and for its development the maintenance of credit and of order burke's imagination led him to look out over the whole land the legislator devising new laws the judge expounding and enforcing old ones the merchant dispatching his goods and extending his credit the banker advancing the money of his customers upon the credit of the merchant the frugal man slowly accumulating the store which is to support him in old age the ancient institutions of church and university with their seemingly provisions for sound learning and true religion the parson in his pulpit the poet pondering his rhymes the farmer eyeing his crops the painter covering his canvases the player educating the feelings burke saw all this with the fancy of a poet and dwelt on it with the eye of a lover but love is the parent of fear and none knew better than burke how thin is the lava layer between the costly fabric of society and the volcanic heats and destroying flames of anarchy he trembled for the fair frame of all established things and to his horror saw men instead of covering the thin surface with the concrete digging in it for abstractions and asking fundamental questions about the origin of society and why one man should be born rich and another poor burke was no prating optimist it was his very knowledge how much could be said against society that quickened his fears for it there is no shallower criticism than that which accuses burke in his later years of apostasy from so-called liberal opinions burke was all his life through a passionate maintainer of the established order of things and a ferocious hater of abstractions and metaphysical polities the same ideas that explode like bombs through his diatribes against the french revolution are to be found shining with a mild effulgence in the comparative calm of his earlier writings i have often been struck with the resemblance which i hope is not wholly fanciful between the attitude of burke's mind toward government and that of cardinal newman toward religion both these great men belong by virtue of their imaginations to the poetic order and they both are to be found dwelling with amazing eloquence detail and wealth of illustration on the varied elements of society both seem as they write to have one hand on the pulse of the world and to be forever alive to the throb of its action and burke as he regarded humanity swarming like bees into and out of their hives of industry asked himself the question how are these men to be saved from anarchy whilst newman puts to himself the question how are these men to be saved from atheism both saw the perils of free inquiry divorced from practical affairs if either of these great men had been guilty of intellectual excesses 
those of burke may be attributed to his dread of anarchy those of newman to his dread of atheism neither of them was prepared to rest content with a scientific frontier an imaginary line so much did they dread their enemy so alive were they to the terrible strength of some of his positions that they could not agree to dispense with the protection afforded by the huge mountains of prejudice and the ancient rivers of custom the sincerity of either man can only be doubted by the bigot and the fool but burke apart from his fears had a constitutional love for old things simply because they were old anything mankind had ever worshipped or venerated or obeyed was dear to him i have already referred to his providing his brahmins with a greenhouse for the purpose of their rites which he watched from outside with great interest one cannot fancy cardinal newman peeping through a window to see men worshipping false though ancient gods warren hastings high-handed dealings with the temples and time-honoured if scandalous customs of the hindus filled burke with horror so too he respected quakers presbyterians independents baptists and all those whom he called constitutional dissenters he has a fine passage somewhere about rust for with all his passion for good government he dearly loved a little rust in this phase of character he reminds one not a little of another great writer whose death literature has still reason to deplore george eliot who in her love for old hedgerows and barns and crumbling moss-grown walls was a writer after burke's own heart whose novels he would have sat up all night to devour for did he not deny with warmth gibson's statement that he had read all five volumes of evelina in a day the thing is impossible cried burke they took me three days doing nothing else now evelina is a good novel but silas marner is a better wordsworth has been called the high priest of nature burke may be called the high priest of order a lover of settled ways of justice peace and security his writings are a storehouse of wisdom not the cheap shrewdness of the mere man of the world but the noble animating wisdom of one who has the poet's heart as well as the statesman's brains nobody is fit to govern this country who has not drunk deep at the springs of burke have you read your burke is at least as sensible a question to put to a parliamentary candidate as to ask him whether he is a total abstainer or a desperate drunkard something there may be about burke to regret and more to dispute but that he loved justice and hated iniquity is certain as also it is that for the most part he dwelt in the paths of purity humanity and good sense may we be found adhering to them end of section ten